Reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who have spoken your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame as at, as at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, by bringing upon us a calamity so great that what has been done against Jerusalem has never before been done under the whole heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We did not entreat the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and reflecting on his fidelity. So the Lord kept watch over this calamity until he brought it upon us. Indeed, the Lord our God is right in all that he has done, for we have disobeyed his voice. And now... O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned even to this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes. And look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the grounds of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. 
Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act and do not delay. For your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and was praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went out, and I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand. From the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease. And in their place shall be an abomination that desolates, until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Um, I can't decide if I want to stay standing up here or if I want to like have us all sit together. I don't know. I think I may stand. Do I have to like, can I? Can we hear it now? Yes. Yes. Is that okay? Okay. Perfect. Okay. So, I may just hold it. Do you want it on the sweater? Do you want it on the necklace? What do you want? I had a specific microphone in my rider and you guys don't have <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna reach her. <laughs> okay. Good morning, everyone. I have spent the past several months with our kids. I've been up in kids class. I've gotten to teach our littles. I've gotten to teach our uh, upper elementary and middle school class. And it's been pretty fun, actually. I've enjoyed getting to kind of hear where their head's at. Sometimes I'm surprised by the things they say. And other times, you know, they say things that I'm like, 
that makes sense. You're 11 years old. <laughs> um, anyways, as a result, I have missed the entirety of the series on Daniel. Um, so I spent the past couple of weeks listening through some of the past sermons, trying to figure out where you guys were at. And as I was doing that, and then as I was reading this lovely text that I apparently signed up to preach on, um, I was realizing that I really wanted to get a better idea for the context of what's going on in Daniel and then what's like, what's going on when this may have been written. Um, I know Charles started talking about some of this last week, but one hypothesis is that Daniel was written um, to the Jews in roughly the 160s BCE, um, who were suffering under the terror of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. I hear you. She's just going to keep doing it. It's fine. Um, as Charles kind of talked about, he was a, a really bad guy. He um, killed thousands and thousands of people. He desecrated the temple. He essentially was trying to stamp out the Jewish culture. Um, so that is a hypothesis of when Daniel was written. But what we read about in Daniel is about the Babylonian captivity and exile, which happened hundreds of years before that, roughly 500 to 600 BCE. And they are, do you want me to hold our miles? Okay. Okay. Um, they are, so Daniel has been taken captive. He's living his whole life in Babylon. And in chapter nine, we see he is referring to, uh, he talks about the documents, reading the documents. He's talking about the prophecies of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah prophesied that the Babylonians would be taken over by the Medes, which as we see in the beginning has happened. Darius, the Mede has come to power. And Jeremiah also prophesied that, um, that things would be getting better, right? That they would, um, be able to leave exile. And Daniel is looking at this prophecy and he's kind of like, uh, everything's still in chaos. We're still under foreign occupation. Things still aren't great here. And so he, he has this prayer that he prays and he prays this communal prayer, first a prayer of confession, saying, this is what we've done wrong. And then he also has this deep prayer of petition, like, okay, God, but do something about it, right? Like, we, we've we had all of this time pass. We've, I've looked at all of your prophecies. Wh- when is this going to be over now? Um, and very quickly, he gets an answer from Gabriel, um, who he met in the previous chapter. Gabriel comes very quickly and he gives him this answer that's kind of like in my Western mind, some sort of mysterious math problem. Um, and so I guess there's like some hope there that like God is listening and that like God's like, Oh yeah, I, I do have an answer. There's a timeline on that. There's some hope there, but I want to kind of go back and focus on the prayer. And I want to think about the situation that Daniel is in is that he's also in captivity and suffering. And this, whoever wrote Daniel is writing this to people at a time who are in captivity 
and who are suffering, who have seen a lot of death, who have seen a lot of just horrible things. And I can't but help to wonder if Daniel and then the Jews that are suffering under Antiochus aren't completely alone in that suffering, because it's very similar. Um, for Daniel, it doesn't seem as if the prophecy of Jeremiah has been fulfilled. And certainly for the Jews under Antiochus time, it would seem like it has not been fulfilled either. The, uh, the commentary that we have been using throughout this series, um, Charles, will you help me see if I get the, his name correct? CL. CO. Thank you. Um, his commentary, CLCO's commentary on Daniel, he talks about how the language of Daniel's prayer in chapter nine indicates that this is not just a spontaneous prayer, but rather it is a liturgical prayer. Uh, he writes that the prayer is one that has been prayed by others or is at least patterned after prayers that others have prayed before. I find this very interesting that at the time of this writing, there is all of this suffering going on. And we're writing a story about someone else who is suffering under this sort of foreign occupation. And the prayer that they choose to bring before God is one that may have been familiar. It's one that may have bridged generations. It may have been one that they had heard before. And I can't help but wonder, is Daniel's prayer familiar enough to the Jews in that time that they realize they're not alone in this suffering, right? People have been here before, and there's not just the hope of like, oh, we've been here before, and then it got better, and I'm, you know, and then there's an answer, and it'll get better again, I'm sure. But almost there's this hope of like, oh, I'm not the only one in this suffering. I am, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Becky Kennedy. Um, she goes by Dr. Becky. She is a clinical psychologist and she is the author of the book, Good Inside. Um, she, um, has, if you will, many parenting philosophies. She primarily works with families and primarily with parents. Um, but one of her sort of philosophies is based on the idea of like, when, when our kids experience hard circumstances or feelings, disappointments, any of those things, that those things aren't actually the worst thing that could happen to our kids. The worst thing that could happen to our kids is them feeling alone or being alone in those hard circumstances or feelings. I kind of think about like, so Margo's scooting around over there. And I think about like when Eloise was little and, you know, when kids are little and they weren't learning to walk and there's like, you know, toddling all over the place and um, you watch them walk. And then inevitably they have a moment where they fall, you know, and a lot of times our first reaction is to go, you're okay. You're okay. You're okay. Right. Because of course we don't want them to be hurt. Like, but I wonder if in the jumping to that, you're okay, everything's okay, it's going to be okay, we're leaving them sort of alone in that experience of falling, right? Alone in that hurt or in that that fear. One thing I used to do with Eloise a lot when she was little, and I try to still remember to do this, is if we were at a playground or whatever and she's playing and I'm watching 
touching her and she falls or, you know, maybe has an interaction with a kid that seems like it didn't go well. I watch her and I, and she makes eye contact with me and I look at her, kind of gauge her reaction. And then I say, I saw that. Right. I saw that. And I wonder if the point of God, of our faith, of Christianity is to show others that they're not alone. Um, Dr. Peter Levine writes, trauma is not what happens to you, but what happens to you in the absence of an empathetic witness. Mm. What happens to you when you are alone? I oftentimes I think about how I grew up in the church and this idea of like being a witness for my faith was to tell other people about Jesus. So they would know about Jesus. So we would all go to heaven and yeah, things might really suck right now, but it's okay. Cause we'll go to heaven and everything will be okay. It's all okay. And that sort of like bypasses their actual experience. And sometimes I wonder if the idea of being a witness is more this idea of being an empathetic witness. It's that, my job isn't necessarily to fix everything because I can't. My job isn't to tell you it's going to be okay because quite frankly, I don't know. Um, but my job is to sit with you and to be with you. So you're not alone in it. And I always struggle with this part because that doesn't make anything better. And that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything except for me and something in my core that brings me some sense of hope of knowing that you're not alone. Um, anyways, I want to hear from you guys. What do you guys think? How is this resonating with you? Share with me your feedback. Oh, <laughs> I did so much work to get it just right. Anybody? John. Oh, yeah. John, go on ahead. Yeah, I have gone to hundreds of 12 step meetings over the decades and I've heard over and over and over and over again. A lot of people, the biggest aha and help and healing is to know they're not alone in whatever addiction, alcohol, drugs, work overeating, to know there's others that have gone through or going through, have come through what they're in. And they're they're accepted and they're not judged and they're not ridiculed and they're not dumped on. It's a safe place to just say what they're troubled with. That is a huge percent of the healing that happens in 12-step groups. Thanks, John. Is this working? Okay. I don't know if I'm supposed to turn around. <laughs> it's okay. <I> won't. <laughs> um, okay. So I also recently listened to a podcast that included Dr. Becky. Um, 
Was it Glennon's podcast? Yes, it was. (laughs) And um, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. It's funny. Um, She talked about, um, you know, like in in regard to our kids you know say they're at school they experience you know something at recess or or you know like no one wanted to play with them or their friends that they expected to play with them were being mean for whatever reason and so like the fact is they were literally alone right at school um no clue why I'm crying (laughs) um but what what was so precious is her talking about um you know as as a parent you know asking questions like where were you sitting when when your friends weren't playing with you? Oh, you were sitting on the you were sitting leaning against the brick wall oh, by your classroom. Oh, and you know, like talking through like all the details and just having them relive those moments and being like, oh, I just I just wish I was sitting there with you. And you know, and that somehow you walking through that experience with them and, and listening and being a witness to their aloneness, all of a sudden their memory of their aloneness now somehow includes you, even though you were never there. Um, and you know, somehow <laughs> they're like, you know, there's this, there's this warmth of, you know, like, you know, my mom's, you know, my, my mom's, you know, comforting me. Um, and, uh, I just think, you know, as adults, that could be such a beautiful thing. Because we are all living our own lives, right? We are all in separate houses for the most part, um, separate worlds, separate jobs, you know, separate everythings. Um, And, you know, to be willing to pay attention to each other and... um, you know, because we're all experiencing aloneness in one way or another, or in one moment or another, um, you know, like figuring out what it looks like to like ask those questions, you know, like, oh, that, you know, like that hard conversation happened at work, you know, like, were you in your office or, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just feeling, just figuring out like how, how to be a witness to other people's alone 
witness, like even when you didn't experience the same thing or you, you know, you weren't there, you, you know, um, uh, yeah. So I listened to that same podcast. I loved it. I love the phrase that she uses the idea of infusing your presence in that memory for your kid. Um, I think about, I also love what you said, Jen, that like, sometimes you're like, like Daniel in this, like, oh no, I've actually been there. Like I know, like I have been there myself, but other times you're like, I don't know that experience, but I am here with you. Um, I think about, uh, a few months after I had Margot, you guys know, I struggle with anxiety and depression. And I was very concerned about that. Um, after, um, Margo was born, that was a huge struggle after Eloise was born. Um, thought I was not going to cry. We'll see. Um, I, Lauren Cohn came over. Um, I was having a difficult time and Lauren Cohn came over and I don't even know if I can look at you. Um, <laughs> we'll go away for me. <laughs> Um, and I was going to lay down to take a nap and I got in my room and she was taking care of Margot and Ellie's was at school and I got in my room and I laid down on my bed and I just had this horrible panic attack and I was just shaking and I came out of my room and I was like, Lauren, and she was like, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm, you know, I'm having a horrible panic attack. And I, I sat down on a chair and I went like, I put my hands over my eyes and I just falling apart basically. And I remember Lauren, you just sat with me and you scratched my back. And when I calmed down a little bit, I told you, I said, I'm so worried. At least when I had Eloise, she was the only one I had. And I knew she wouldn't remember any of this because she was too little. And now I'm worried that Eloise is older and she might remember this. I'm worried I'm going to traumatize her. And I just remember you giving me a hug. I remember you telling me like so many parents worry about traumatizing their kids. And <laughs> and in that moment, I I wasn't alone. And it's not like you told me, your panic attack is going to go away and you're never going to have another one. Or it's fine. When you die, you'll go to heaven. It won't be a big deal or like anything like that. But there was something so hopeful and healing for me about the physical presence of another. Um, and, and sometimes I just like, I don't even know what I believe about God or the afterlife or what our purpose is, but I can't help but wonder if maybe that's more the point is just being with people, just asking questions, just being curious, not, not for any other purpose other than to be like, you're not alone. And maybe the purpose of God and Jesus is that Jesus also was showing me like, I, I saw that. Like you're not alone. Um, Anyone else have anything else they want to say? This is really all I got. Yeah. I'll push the button. Okay.
<laughs> now this is this is all great, and I've had so so many thoughts. One is just describing that as a parent, and when you see something happening to your child, and how you how you react to that and interact, and like that's probably the best that we can do is just to say, Hey, I saw that happen and to acknowledge and legitimize their experience and to join them as much as we can in that, right. Not cover over it. And then to think back to this scripture and what's going on in that and maybe what's going on in the, the Gabriel vision part of the thing, uh, who knows, but, um, but I'm just thinking that if like, if we're God is often described as a parent to us. And I wonder a lot of times this, we assume, well, God is going to fix everything for us. So we should fix everything for our kids. And maybe it's neither of those. It's that God is going to be there with us and see our experience and share our experience and that's what we can do for our kids too, is to be there with them and share with them. And that's what we can do for each other too. I don't know. I just, that really connected uh, some dots there for me. The other thing that I heard in this is just how, I think this is one of the reasons why we tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way from, this is one of my worst moments and I need someone to listen to me and hear me out or even to, you will not believe the the day that I just had at work, right? Anywhere in between, like there is a certain catharsis from just sitting down with another person and sharing this thing and then, and and having them validate your experience and go, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that happened to you or, Oh goodness, you know, it, we're going to, we're here together or what, whatever, whatever is needed in that moment. But just that act of sharing my experience with someone else and having the other person acknowledge it and validate it. And I hadn't thought about that before, but like the idea of recounting it is in a way reliving the experience, but this time with someone that you trust mm-hmm. and how, yeah, how powerful that can be. I can't remember the phrase where I heard this phrase. Um, it was a book or an article, but uh, uh, this turn that happened in Christianity where the gospel became the therapeutic gospel, which is God exists and the cross exists and the gospel exists to save us from pain, uh, that the message of the church is often God doesn't want you to experience any pain. And what I, uh, with lots of problems with that. Um, and th- this is, this is the, uh, not, it's not the antidote. It's not the, the, the I don't know. This is the truth that, um, God and the gospel doesn't exist to avoid us, to, to keep us from pain. Uh, the good news is that God is with us, that we're not alone. Uh, that the message um, and the invitation uh, is to be the good news with our neighbors, which is to be present with them. And even 
you know, Charles has talked about the, the four moves of the contemplative life. All right. Uh, show up, uh, look for where God might be, uh, join God and release the outcomes. That is essentially the work of, of the message of Daniel. Uh, it, it is show up, be present, um, release the outcomes. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of the ways in which this communal prayer and its connection through the generations brings a whole community of folks um, alongside these people who are feeling alone and the good news that we're not alone in the midst of it all, even if we don't know how it's going to end. Charles. Meet me. Oh. Uh, I, uh, I dig, uh, what you're connecting to in the text, Val, the, the community and kind of trauma connections that uh um it's uh it uh, it's wonderful um i uh i was like what's she going to do with this and i was like oh okay well i'm, I'm so glad i was like what yeah uh uh I'm just striking to me how like so many of the worst things that can happen to us happen to us in isolation mm-hmm. and like shame and toxic shame and like all of the, the sin narrative of this text, you know, and mm-hmm. the, how much we've sinned and wronged God that like the, um, when we don't name our brokenness and we feel like, I'm the only one who is broken and screws up and hurts other people. Uh, we can feel like pieces of crap, like, like, uh, uh, but there's something about like naming that together that is healing. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm not alone. Even in the ways that I harm others, uh, that I don't want to. Um, and, and in the stuff that happens to us, trauma is, uh, the, the same way that, uh trauma is like our bodies telling us we're not meant to be isolated mm-hmm. um i heard i heard uh somebody talking about uh a project they did among midwives uh who uh who were working especially with women of color um, to do uh, maternity care in, in, uh, in a population of women who are disproportionately, uh, harmed and even die because of, uh, those embedded biases and racism, structural problems. And the, one of the midwives told, um, this researcher, they said, it's traumatic if it happens to you. But if it's, it's empowering if it happens with you. Mm. And I was like, yes, that's exactly the same thing. Like when we feel disconnected or isolated or like powerless and not with other people, 
that's when the bad stuff happens. But like, I mean, isn't that, is, isn't that the point of like our, our spiritual community and our relationships is like naming these things together, just in naming them together and being together in the naming of the things is like sustaining and healing and, um, uh, holding, you know, for us anyway. I'm not saying anything new. I'm just like basking in the truth of this. Um, that, that maybe that is the, maybe that is the point. And even eschatologically, what if, what if the trajectory of the universe is this very thing toward belonging, Mm -hmm. toward community, toward uh, breaking down isolation, toward witnessing and being with and solidarity? What, what if that is the arc? of the universe that everything is moving toward so that when we do that together, it is a foretaste of what is to come. Yeah. I, in one of my uh, counseling sessions, I had told my counselor exactly what I told Lauren about. I'm so worried that I'm going to traumatize my older child because I'm struggling. Right. And she told me, she was like, um, you know, we, kids can actually experience some really horrific things, really horrific things. And if they have a loving and trusting adult to process it with, the trauma does not embed itself in their body. And every time I think about that, when I think about that in the context of my faith, it's like, oh, the whole point is to be able to process that through with someone, for someone to see it, to bear witness to it, and then for to be able to release it, right? And it's not to fix it. Um, anyways, okay, I'm gonna pray. Oh, oh, John, you have one more comment? Go for it, John. Yes, please. Um, yeah, I, I, what, what, the, what this is uh, resonating with me is that humans are social animals and that, um, uh, it, th- my brother did a lot of volunteer work at hospices and they go through this training. And what can you do if somebody's about to die? Nothing. But just by getting there and sitting with them and being with them, the, even though they can hardly talk, they, they're, they're, they're half conscious. They find that that helps them immensely. It's just a ministry of presence. Just being with a dying person is a huge help. Uh, Similarly, I'm thinking of children in hospitals that have cancer. Uh, they're all, they're, they're a mess. But, but when I get depressed, what helps me is to go watch videos about service dogs that, that go and visit with them. The kids light up. They are loved and they can give love and it lifts them up immensely because they need that connection. Lastly, the worst punishment in a prison is solitary confinement. 23 hours in a cell, alone, period. You get to go out and do a little exercise, and that's it. That's the worst that humans could do to humans. Pass. Thanks, John. Oh, am I, am I on? No? Now? Yes? Okay. Thanks, John. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Dear God, 
Thank you for your presence. Thank you for other people. Thank you for giving us the ability to connect with each other. And God, I ask that you you just help us to pay attention to what's going on around us. And and just join in, just do something about it. It doesn't have to be the perfect thing or the right thing and just release those outcomes. It does don't do not worry about that. Let us be will have the courage to be a loving and non-judgmental presence in each other's lives and in the lives of all of those around us and our neighbors. Um, I pray that we will see you as loving and non-judgmental presence in our lives. We love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.